My name is Liz David Barrett, and I am very excited to announce that the Centre for the Study of Corruption at the University of Sussex is going to be the new home of the Kickback podcast for a three-year period. So thank you so much to Matthew Stevenson and Christopher Stark and Niels Kobis for doing a fantastic job in developing this platform and building up a loyal group of listeners in the anti-corruption community. There have been more than 80,000 listens since the podcast was launched just under three years ago. And it was also voted number one in a uh, poll about the best anti-corruption podcast conducted by the Centre for International Private Enterprise, SIPE, last year. So I'm really delighted to have Matthew Stevenson here with me today to talk about Kickback. And Matthew, great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's an interesting experience to be on the other side of the interview, but I'm delighted. Good, I hope so. Can you tell us why you decided to start Kickback in the first place? Sure. I would say that the the, the podcast has its origins in some conversations I had with some students of mine at Harvard Law School, as well as uh, the people who came to be my collaborators at the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network. So as uh, some of our listeners may be aware, for close to nine years now, I've been the editor-in-chief of a platform called the Global Anti-Corruption Blog, which publishes commentaries, analyses, uh, uh, pieces about corruption and anti-corruption. And I also, at Harvard Law School, run a class that's associated with the blog where many of my very talented students uh, who are interested in corruption and anti-corruption have the opportunity to do independent research and then write pieces for the blog. And I remembered very distinctly several years back having a conversation with some of those students who said, have you ever thought about starting a podcast? And my answer was, well, no, not really. It took me a while to even figure out how blogs worked. And so I'm a little bit behind the times. And they said that a lot of people these days get not just news, but a lot of information and analysis and engagement with the fields they're interested in through podcasts. And so this was interesting to me, and it seemed like something that might be worth doing, possibly in conjunction with the blog. But frankly, I, I didn't have the time or the bandwidth or the technical ability to really make it happen. But then not too long after that, I was meeting with uh, Niels, uh, who you mentioned is one of the people who's part of this great organization of young researchers called the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network. I sit on uh, the advisory board of that group. And uh, Niels had come through uh, Cambridge to present some of his academic work. And we'd had a, a, a breakfast where we were going to talk about future activities that the ICRN could pursue. And he mentioned that completely independently of anything that I've been thinking about, that the ICRN was thinking about starting uh, an anti-corruption podcast. And of course, I recalled the conversation I'd had with my students. I said, oh, well, you know, I was talking to some people a little bit younger than you and a lot younger than me who said podcasts are really the way to go. We should do this and that was really the, the conversation that started this. And then Christopher Stark, also a part of the ICRN, got uh, roped into this project as well. And then that was really uh, the origin for the podcast. And it was very much influenced by, uh, again, my conversations with younger people. I used to think of myself as one of the younger people. It's amazing how quickly that's not true anymore. Uh, so any of you out there who are listening who like to think of yourselves as the young people, just wait a few years. Uh, and this happened to me. Um, and they really emphasized that academic articles are great, blogs are great, but many people really like, in addition to reading material, also have things to 
listen to and it allows you to engage in conversations or, or debates or what have you in just a different way. Uh, it's a little bit more informal, it's a little bit more obviously conversational by its nature, and that doing something like a podcast would be a nice uh, complement to the blog and then the more extended written work that you and I and others do in our academic capacities. Yeah, of course, because you were also for years and years compiling that great bibliography of all of the corruption articles. So I guess there were these different levels where people could access. Um, you know, there was a reading list, um, which I think is now an interactive database. There, there was the blog and the podcast too. So lots of different formats. And in Kickback, you have done, as we said, more than 80 episodes now. Um, so thinking back over all those, you spoke to a lot of academics, to some practitioners, do you have a sense of key takeaways or themes that came out over the course of all of those different conversations with different people? Well, it's a terrific question. I'm not sure I've got a great answer for you. One of the things that emerged from those conversations, which is not at all a surprise, is just the diversity within the community of people who are very interested in corruption and anti-corruption. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I like about the blog as well, but maybe especially the podcast, is the capacity to bring all of those different voices into the conversation, not simultaneously, obviously, in that format, but at least in a common platform. And just getting a sense of the way different people with different kinds of backgrounds and interests approach this theme or this topic uh, differently, but also with a set of common concerns. I think most people who get interested in this field do it because they are they're concerned about the problem at, at some level and want to better understand it and all but also figure out a way to better address it. So it's really interesting having conversations one week with you know, a senior academic who's been theorizing about corruption for 20 years and then with a former FBI agent who's been talking about the practicalities of doing actual anti-corruption investigations and then from someone from an NGO group, maybe in a particular country, talking about the specific challenges there. So I think it really, um, you get a nice sense of the, of the diversity. I do think that maybe a takeaway from that, it's maybe a little bit more of a, I don't want to say a negative side exactly, but it, it, it is clear that our community could do better in improving channels of communication across these different groups of people with different uh, perspectives and approaches, mm -hmm. um, and just who come from different countries. So it's one, something that's really revealing is, you know, have a conversation with someone who's working in Vietnam and have another conversation with someone who's working in Colombia and someone else who's working, you know, somewhere in Europe. And obviously there are enormous differences, but also you kind of get the sense that these people would have a lot to learn from each other and, and have to some extent. So that's not a great answer to your question in terms of big core themes that have come through. Yeah. But one thing that's really uh, been driven home to me is the diversity of the field and the need for greater engagement and uh, dialogue. I think that's also quite interesting, you know, just sort of taking an academic sort of stance on that too, that, you know, we talk a lot about the importance of collective action for anti-corruption. Yep. And part of the reason that's important is, you need to know that there are lots of other people out there working on a similar thing and like-minded to partly to empower you to think that, well, it's worth going after all of this stuff. I'm not going to be completely on my own. So I think actually a sort of unintended 
um, consequence maybe of of the podcast is you know building up this community where people do feel like oh there actually there are other people um, struggling with this same problem. Um, I mean I see that a bit with our students. You probably do too. That our students at Sussex um, and also at the International Anti Corruption Academy where I'm sitting at the moment they they learn a lot from each other, but that continues after they've left. So it's not just about the taking the course. It's also that then they're networked. And they go out and, you know, when they're trying to implement some particular policy in their anti-corruption job in uh, an anti-corruption agency or the private sector, they, they're thinking, oh, you know, I've, got, I've come across this obstacle or this problem, but I could, you know, I could put this in the WhatsApp group and see if anyone else has run into this. Or I could go and um, contact that old friend who I met on the course who went through this. And I think the podcast in a way does the same. So I've occasionally, if I've got a new research topic, I sort of go back and trawl through kickback and think, oh, there was an episode on this um, a little while ago. So it sort of also serves, I think, a bit of that function. So that's delightful, obviously, to hear. One other thing I'll I'll say about this that was something I don't think was in our heads when we created the podcast, but that's really um, hit home and and made me feel good about doing it, is that um, people like me, and I suspect people like you, have a lot of opportunities, certainly in the pre-COVID and now we hope in the post-COVID world, to go to meetings and conferences and meet people and talk and just get a sense of their perspectives. And it's a little bit different from just reading their scholarship or reading their reports. But a lot of people who are very interested in corruption, especially people in what, for lack of better terminology, we call the global south or the developing world or whatever the, the appropriate terminology is these days, don't always have the same resources and opportunities to engage in those conversations in person and face-to-face. And obviously, a podcast can't replace that. What we really need to do is you know, get more resources and create more opportunities. But it really, uh, something struck me, you know, uh, one, the first episode I think we ever did was with Susan Rose Ackerman, who's one of the, the great leading figures who helped make this an academic field really 40 years ago. And I've had the opportunity to meet Susan on many occasions. Um, I've seen her present papers, but we've also had conver- just opportunities to have conversations and chat and so forth. But a lot of people who've read her work or are familiar with her work have never heard her voice, have never had the opportunity to you know, go to it and also just hear some people talking. And it's not the same as reading serious analytical work. It's not a replacement for that. But we got some feedback on early episodes that made me really uh, realize, in a sense, how, how privileged and how lucky I am to be in a world where I can just have these informal conversations or just listen in to people having these dialogues all the time. But not everybody in our community um, has that opportunity. And so not just through one podcast, but generally, I think creating more opportunities for people to feel like they're plugged in to those communities and can hear people talking or working things out as they go. I think I think that's very valuable. So I think that's a good thing from for, for the podcast uh, to help, you know, contribute to. Yeah, no, I think, you know, that's a great point. I mean, do you feel that there are regions of the world that you've you know, you would like to do more that you covered less well or more well, or in terms of getting listeners uh, there? there Yeah, for sure. So, so um, Sub-Saharan Africa, actually all of Africa, frankly, but Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, we've had a couple of really terrific episodes uh, with people from that region, but that's a huge region. I mean, Africa is gigantic and there are huge intra-African differences across regions and different countries. So, um, I feel I, I I wish that we had had more opportunity to engage with more people from 
that part of the world. And I hope that as you guys at the Center for the Study of Corruption take it forward, uh, you'll have more opportunities to, to engage there. Uh, I feel like the Middle East, North Africa region, too, is one where we've had a bit um, we had at least one episode, maybe two, that focused on Israel. Of course, Israel, though, in the region is substantially different from many other countries in the region, um, culturally, level of development, so forth. So, so I feel like that's another place where regionally uh, I, I, I would have liked to get a, a little bit more coverage you know, everywhere. I mean, 80 episodes is actually not that much uh, when you think about how big the world is and how big the problem is. But those are two regions I, I wish we'd had a chance to, to cover um, a bit more. In terms of, you know, type of people, I think that I have a soft spot for academics because I am an academic. And I love I love chatting with academics, but maybe precisely for that reason, for me personally, some of the most interesting conversations were talking with people who were not academics, but had really extensive experience dealing with these issues in a, in a practical capacity and just hearing them tell their stories and talk about the challenges they faced and the things that they did to overcome those challenges uh, was, was super interesting. Any um, kind of favorites or examples there that you would point people to if they're going back in the archives? Oh, uh, that's like asking which of my children I love the most. I'm not going <laughs> to pick uh, favorite <laughs> episodes or favorite people that I've interviewed, but I would just say generally, I think I think that's uh, that sort of stuff is quite interesting. Part of me wants to say I wish we'd had more policymakers in, in government. Um, we've had one or two, I think someone from the European Parliament was it. But at the same time, I don't know about you, but I often find that people who are senior government officials, many of them, even when they're no longer in their senior capacities, are not as, you get a lot of um, buzzwords and talking points and high level generalities. You know, it's a little bit like, I mean, maybe, uh, I hope I don't offend some people here, but plenary sessions and keynote addresses at big conferences. We're recording this before the big international anti-corruption conference in Washington, D.C. This episode may broadcast during or, or after. But at those meetings, the plenary sessions, let's face it, are almost always dreadful. And the keynote addresses are almost always dreadful because you get people with big fancy titles who are just kind of saying the same things over and over. Corruption is bad. It's not a victimless crime. We need new partnerships between the public and the private sector, blah, blah, collective action, blah, blah, youth, blah, blah, new technology. And it means nothing. What I really like about the podcast at its best, and frankly, academic or, or conference panels at their best, is when you get people who stop talking in generalities and pleasantries and, and talking points and really get into it. I mean, some of my favorite podcasts episodes to do were ones that were not not contentious exactly but when people are, are are pressing each other well you just said that and that didn't quite make sense i want you to explain that a bit more like how does that follow or, or like, those are the most fun in a way to do um so this was a little bit of a digression but i'd all started when i said part of me was thinking oh maybe we should have gotten some more like big names on the podcast big names not in the academic field but you know, policymaker types. But then part of me is like, those people hardly have anything interesting to say that they'd be willing to say in public on a podcast. I'd rather keep talking to people who are willing to kind of get down in the muck a little bit and and acknowledge uncertainty and argue and so forth. So what, what do you think are the big themes and the big challenges that the anti-corruption community should be tackling? What are those things that we're maybe not addressing at the high level, but we really should be? So one thing that I think is a very challenging problem that I don't think we've got our, our hands around is what I'll call the political economy of anti-corruption reform. So how is it 
that one can build the right kinds of coalitions or political momentum to make the kinds of reforms that are important, right? So I think that you know, there's been a lot of research and a lot of discussion about corruption's adverse impact. That's been very useful, but I feel like the marginal added value of another paper or presentation or what have you showing that corruption is bad uh, in various ways is not that high. I think with respect to how to respond to corruption or solutions to corruption, what I'm about to say may be um, disputed in some quarters, but I actually think we know a lot. There's always new stuff that we can learn. I think, for example, the focus in the last 10 to 20 years on financial and corporate transparency and cracking down on money flows, especially across borders, really important, wasn't getting nearly as much attention even in the anti-corruption community just 10 years ago and is getting more now. So I, I don't want to dismiss that. But I kind of feel like in terms of what, what tools are helpful in combating corruption, we know a lot, like 80 to 90% of it. We've got a good sense of the package. And of course, it's got to be tailored to different countries and different sectors, but we, we kind of know uh, at least the basics of what one should do if you want to try to get corruption at least somewhat under control. The harder question, I think, to my mind, is politically how to make it work. Because as I've said in other forums, and some listeners have heard me say this in other forums, big problem with corruption is almost by definition is the people with the power to change the system mm -hmm. are the people who benefit from the existing system. So if existing political elites got there, uh, succeeded, in a system that had corruption that rewarded corruption, it's a it's a tall order to convince them to change their minds. Uh, with respect to people who are extremely wealthy under the existing system, it's a tall order to get them to change their minds. But it's not impossible, which is another theme I've emphasized in some of my own research and commentary. Pretty much every country today, I don't want to say literally every country, there may be exceptions, but most countries that I'm aware of where corruption is at least somewhat under control not eliminated anywhere, but somewhat under control, started from a position like that, where political and economic elites benefited from a corrupt status quo. So it's possible to do, we've got some historical examples that some people, and we included in other work that looked into, but I feel like that's central to yeah. the research agenda going forward. To better understand that process is really vital and maybe calls for a different skill set or a different toolkit than many of the academics, me included, who have gotten into this field. But I'd say that would be the number one thing. The other thing that I would say, which is maybe more of a thing to do le less of, if you will, in addition to all the research that a, a someone else, uh, another scholar in the field once described as admiring the problem, like more and more research that corruption is bad, I feel like the academic world has gotten too enamored of theory with a capital T, uh, often with some descriptor in front of it, you know, collective action theory, principal agent theory, norms theory, whatever. And I don't know, I'm a theory guy. Like I came out of a political science tradition that was very game theory, political economy oriented. I mean, my academic uh, reputation was really built in another field on doing pretty mathematical game theoretical models. So I love theory and I love abstraction. Um, I think it can be really useful. I think very simple or sometimes less simple models can be extraordinarily clarifying. But there's a danger in like theory just becoming slogans and buzzwords and not being really rigorous, not doing what it's supposed to do, which is to help to organize a collection of complicated facts in a way that allows one to break it down into its component parts and generate and assess hypotheses. So I guess I would caution 
young folks especially, and I don't mean young chronologically, I mean newish to the world of anti-corruption research, avoid spending too much time just crunching numbers to get results that people have been getting for 25 years just because the data is easily available. And beware writing big think pieces that are like theory with a capital T uh, if it's not directly connected to better understanding some complicated phenomenon or puzzle in the world. That's that's great. So, I mean, actually, they're quite related, your two points. Yeah. So there's sort of get more practical and then there's a sort of also bigger picture, get more political um, mm-hmm. and more politically about what you can achieve, which I think is interesting because I, I noticed that one of the um, most popular podcasts was a conversation between Mushtaq Khan and Paul Haywood, which is actually quite a lot around this theme of you know, Mushtaq Khan's work is a lot about you know, how can you um, come up with anti-corruption reforms that are actually going to be politically feasible and that at least some of the vested interests will buy into. So it's quite that sort of realpolitik um, approach. So, yeah, I think it'd be great to do do more of that. We're certainly keen, I think, to you know, to take on that challenge and get some um, more practitioners um, in talking about how they manage that kind of thing. You also mentioned their um, sort of learning from historical examples. So I wonder if I just quickly ask you to digress into a paper that you did recently on the US as an example. And I think that finding that incremental change um, is actually what often makes the difference. Yeah, so thanks for asking about this. This is joint work that I did with um, Tino Cuer, Mariana Florentino Cuer, but but he goes by Tino, who's terrific, a former justice of the California Supreme Court uh, and still a very, now I think he's, he runs the Carnegie uh, Foundation and he's uh, great. We've known each other for many years. He's very smart. He managed to continue to do quite serious academic work despite having this other day job. And he and I... Uh, realized that we had a shared interest in thinking about the history of our own country, the United States, as a developing country, in a way, if you look back in historical times. So, Tino, uh, several years ago, came to Harvard Law School to present a paper that he was working on with a couple of political scientists, Barry Weingast and Margaret Levy, um, that, that had this idea of the United States as developing country, looking especially at the history of the U.S. in the, the 19th and early 20th century. And that paper, uh, which is a very interesting paper, wasn't focused on corruption specifically, but had a subsection in it on corruption. And I took a great interest in that because, of course, I had been working on corruption uh, as one of my main focus areas. And I had also started been, th- been thinking about the, the history of the United States. And I had a vague sense that there was something interesting to say about the fight against corruption in the U.S. over this period. And seeing that Tino had had some preliminary thoughts along the same lines, was sort of the, the genesis of that collaboration. Now, that's the origin story for the paper. What's more interesting, I assume, for our readers is less how it came to be and, and, and what we try to um, talk about in the paper. So you mentioned incre- the incremental reforms. And let me pick up on that and connect the paper that you asked about with some other work that, I, that was more theoretical and more abstract. Because in the world of corruption, anti-corruption, some of these academics were more theoretically inclined, had um, advanced an idea based on some game theoretic modeling, some economic modeling, that when you get a problem like corruption that tends to be self-reinforcing in the sense that when you have more corruption, the incentives to behave corruptly get stronger, right? Uh, Then the only way, the stronger versions of these arguments would say the only way to break out of this 
trap, what's sometimes called the high corruption equilibrium trap, is some jargony terms you hear, is through what the literature sometimes calls a big bang or a big push, comprehensive, like all at once reforms. And then the people who, uh, some of the people who develop this argument make the argument theoretically, right? They write down some models and there's some math and there's some pictures and they say, see, um, we've demonstrated just as a matter of economic uh, and political logic that corruption self-reinforcing property means incremental reforms can't possibly work. And yep. you can only break out of this with a, a big bang. And I had, I had internalized this. I had given lectures where I made this point, but then I started thinking about it. And this is the game theorist in me. I was like, I'm not sure that's right. And I started fiddling a little bit with the models and reading the papers. And I did a separate paper for the World Bank Research Observer that basically said this is wrong. And this is a paper that for the non-techie social science folks out there, they might find it a little bit difficult to read. It's a little bit technical. It's a little bit jargony. But that was the paper where I was working through the internal economic logic. And that paper showed that it's not an argument that you can't do comprehensive reform. The argument, though, is that comprehensive reform isn't necessary, or at least these models don't prove that it's necessary. But doing that at an abstract level still doesn't establish in the real world um, it might not be necessary, right? There's two prongs to the argument that the only way to fight entrenched corruption is through a big bang. One is a theoretical argument that purported to show that self corruption self-reinforcing nature means that as a logical matter, only a big bang can work. Incremental reforms will always get overwhelmed by the force of the system. But there's also a historical or empirical argument that in, in point of fact, those countries that have overcome systemic corruption have done it through a comprehensive big bank reform. So I often think of these two papers together. So the World Bank Research Observer paper, um, which maybe you can link to in the show notes. I don't know if you guys do that. That's the, yeah. that's the theoretical treatment of this. But then Tino and I, in our exploration of US history, I think of this paper, though it didn't necessarily start out this way, as the empirical or historical counterpoint. Because if you look at the US experience in fighting corruption, it didn't really occur through a big bang reform. It wasn't like there was one visionary leader who launched a comprehensive crackdown. Like there was no Lee Kuan Yew figure or Saakashvili figure to, I mentioned the former Singaporean prime minister, the former Georgian president, who were often held up as examples of people who spearheaded these big bang type reforms. It's true that in the early 20th century, Theodore Roosevelt was a very significant figure in progressive era and pushing an anti-corruption and general governance reform agenda. It's true that Woodrow Wilson, who is obviously a controversial figure now because of his extremely reactionary views about race, but on, on good governance issues was, was also an important figure. President Franklin Roosevelt in the New Deal. Like, so you can point to some figures, but it's not like there's, again, that Lee Kuan Yew or Saakashvili figure. It's not like there's one two-year period, five-year period, even 10-year period. What we found in looking at U.S. history, first of all, if you were in the United States back in the 1850s, let's say, you might well have thought that corruption was so deeply entrenched, such a deeply entrenched part of U.S. political culture, that there was like nothing anyone could do about it. And in fact, people at the time said stuff like this. Both people in the United States and foreign observers would come to the United States and say corruption is just the way things get gets done here, which was itself really interesting to me because given that I study corruption throughout the world, I've heard many people from countries where corruption is deeply entrenched say things like, it's just part of our culture, there's nothing we can do, we inherited this from the people who colonized us, or it's just part of the way we've always done things here, going back hundreds and hundreds of years. So this to me was already, a, when you, I see 
the United States in the 1850s, similar kinds of patterns, it's already evidence that maybe people have a tendency to overstate the immutability of political cultures. But so you might have thought nothing would ever change. Starting after the U.S. Civil War, at the end of the U.S. Civil War in 1865, through the 1870s, 1880s, up through the start of World War One, which is where we mainly end the fo- World War Two, excuse me, which is where we mainly end the focus of our paper. But then even beyond, you see periods of progress. You see in the United States, I mean, periods of progress. Here is backsliding. You see leadership from the top, but you see also leadership from civil society. You often see those two things working in tandem. Um, you often get initial reforms that by themselves are a little bit unsatisfying, don't do very much, but that lay the foundation for progress later on. So with respect to criminalization of bribery, you start out where many forms of bribery, at least by public officials, aren't even against the law. And then they get prohibited, but no one ever gets prosecuted. And you get some periods where some people start to get prosecuted, but it's not the really high-level people. It's like lower-level people. Then you get these breakthroughs where really high-level people get prosecuted, not a lot, but enough to send the signal that it's possible. And you also see the laws gradually expanding and the coverage getting wider and so forth. And so there's that. You know, after the, the most important civil service reform in the United States, the push for it started after the Civil War, but it took 20 years to get the first bill passed, even after maybe 17 years. I'm exaggerating a little bit. Even that only covered about 10% of the civilian workforce of the federal government. It didn't cover the states at all. But then 10, 15 years later, it's a big push for expanded civil service reform and the coverage gets broader. And you see expanded effort at the state level. And then by the time the US enters World War II, um, something like 90% of the federal civil civilian workforce is published. But it's a half century plus um, for that progress to take place. So a pattern, and again, I don't want to overgeneralize. I don't want to say other countries can or should try to follow the U.S. model. That's not The point is just an illustration that in the U.S., it wasn't one moment of dramatic reform. It was important reforms that laid the foundation for future generations to take things forward. So I draw from that a couple of lessons. One is um, more evidence against the assertion that the only way to fight corruption is through big bang comprehensive reform. That's a way to fight corruption. We have examples where that that has been at least somewhat successful, but it's not the only way. Um, and also, it's kind of an optimistic story that for many people who are fighting against corruption, who are struggling, who are like, nothing can be done, like nothing happens, or we do something and it's only a half measure. Well, if you look at the longer sweep of history, this stuff matters. And it matters that people aren't satisfied and keep pushing and building and advancing. And things can change. I mean, the U.S. still has far too much corruption. I don't want to make it sound to your listeners like I'm saying my country has solved corruption. Not so. If we've learned anything from the last six years, shall we say, um, not so. But the United States in 2022, or even for that matter, in 1941, is not the United States in 1870 or 1850 or 1820 when it comes to corruption in terms of its pervasiveness and its general um, toleration in the society or the political system. It's just drastically different. And that took time. And it's partly a credit to visionary political leaders, but it's also a credit to what we now call civil society. They didn't use that terminology back in the 19th century, but that's what it was. Yeah. And in fact, you know, I mean, that is a very optimistic note. And in particular, when you were describing the bribery laws there, I was thinking, 
you know, we talk about this kind of terminology so much, we, you know, we get across that we've introduced lots of laws, but they're not actually being implemented or enforced. But actually, what you talked about there is, well, okay, the law introducing the law is the first step, but then you need pressure to get the enforcement and, and then more enforcement and then enforcement against the higher level people. So I think it is really interesting and useful to be able I'm to sure. look back at that progression. Just to take a much more compressed example of a similar kind of thing, take the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, that U.S. law that prohibits bribery of foreign public officials. So that law gets passed in 1977 after some major scandals involving U.S. companies paying bribes abroad. That's an important moment, but enforcement of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is very weak, right? maybe one or two cases a year at most for something like 20 years. And the U.S. is the only country that has such a law up until the mid-1990s. So if you were looking at this in the mid-1980s, you might say, you know, a lot of fanfare, they passed this law, but didn't really mean anything. It was just for show. It was part of this Carter-era wave of let's be like do-gooders around the world, but it really doesn't mean anything. Well, but then in 1990. Between 1995 and 1997, you basically get the negotiation and the ratification of the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention. Now, most other countries aren't enforcing it yet, but then shortly thereafter, in the late 90s and early 2000s, U.S. enforcement of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act starts to really accelerate. And then other countries actually start to enforce their laws more aggressively. The United Kingdom in 2010 passes the UK Bribery Act, which is in some ways more ambitious than the FCPA. Now, it's also not enforced terribly aggressively initially, and there's still a lot of room for improvement. But I guess part of the lesson of looking at things in historical time is that you know, these things do take time. If we hadn't passed the FCPA, there, if the U.S. hadn't passed the FCPA, there never would have been an OECD convention. If there hadn't been an OECD convention, there never would have been a U.K. bribery act. And if these laws weren't passed in the first place and on the books for decades, you wouldn't have gotten some ambitious and entrepreneurial prosecutors saying, well, we got this law, let's use it and, and blowing this up. So um, this is not a message that people should be complacent right? The fact that people were dissatisfied was a good thing. It's what kept things moving forward. But it is a message not to be despondent, right? Not to give up and think that nothing matters, even if in the short term, you're not seeing huge results. All this stuff, at least has the potential to matter quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think that's a really nice case study, actually, the um, the anti-bribery laws or laws against bribery in international business. And, um, and also on that, people often criticize that Still, there's not that much enforcement, and a lot of the enforcement is sort of goes to negotiations and settlements, and so maybe it's not having enough of a deterrent effect. And I slightly buy that, um, but I also think that they end up having an effect because even in settlements, companies are only treated leniently if they can demonstrate they've got a good compliance program. And so probably having those laws is having an effect because companies are taking more care to assess the risk and put in better structures. And um, so it's something that I've um, been working on with Branislav Hock, and we've got a, um, a recent paper out on that, actually. So I think you know, the the effects of all of these things are much more far reaching than just putting a law on the statute books um, and lots of sort of ripple effects, which are really interesting. I agree. And I don't want to tell people this is what I said before about complacency. Stay dissatisfied. It's good that people are dissatisfied. Yeah. I'm not saying, hey, you got this law. It's progress. Be happy. Because the fact that we have in our community people who are perpetually dissatisfied for whom nothing is ever good enough is, I think, on net a good thing. That's what keeps us moving forward. But what I do want to resist 
is the idea that these seemingly incremental or piecemeal reforms don't matter, right? That if you can't get something big and dramatic and world-changing, that there's no point. Uh, I think fighting and clawing for everything you can get uh, is a good thing. And then you get it, and then you should stay dissatisfied and push for the next thing. Fantastic. I'm glad we got an opportunity to talk a bit about some of your work, but we also hope that you'll come back another time and talk um, in more detail about um, your latest research. Um, but also really glad that we got to talk about your kind of worldview. And, um, and I think that's really core to kickback, starting this debate, getting people on talking about what's happening, what what the promising reforms are, what the challenges are with all of those, um, and just making sure that we're constantly kind of moving forward. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Again, it's a, it's a new and different experience to be on this side of the interview, answering the questions instead of asking them. Uh, but I'm quite enjoying it. And I'm so happy that that Kickback will be hosted by you and your colleagues. I think it's it's uh, great. And I'm just uh, thrilled that the, that the podcast will continue to, to move forward under your stewardship. That's fantastic. And uh, the team at Sussex will be putting out episodes in the new year. We've got an exciting list of guests lined up. Uh, but please do also contact us if you have suggestions for guests and future topics that we should cover in Kickback.